Good evening, everyone. It is 7 o'clock. It is great to see all of you here. So take your Bibles out if you haven't already and join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at verses 6 through 9 tonight. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, the outlines are in the back and um, available, obviously, there. And we are calling this tonight The Joy of the New Birth. And it's kind of a funny title, uh, considering what the verses talk about at the beginning of it. But that's, uh, that's the point of even this first poem that I'm going to share with you from an English poet in the late, uh, late 1800s. But before we do, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the time that we have to be together tonight to open your word, to uh, dive into this section of 1 Peter and to discern uh, what Peter is telling uh, the people there and telling us as well. So Lord, uh, help us apply this to our lives as we journey together tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Like I said, English poet from the 18, late 1800s uh, wanted to let us know that he was acquainted with more than just the joyful prospect of the eternal inheritance that Peter is talking about before these verses. What he was letting us know in this poem is that he had firsthand knowledge that the road to heaven is marked out by earthly sorrow. And so he said these uh, very, very famous words. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. So it's, it's a powerful little poem. But that idea of joy and woe woven fine is so true in what Peter is laying out to us tonight in this section of scripture. And yet, as you know, as I know, somehow suffering still catches us by surprise. It's like, hold it, wouldn't it? What, when was this supposed to happen? Or why is this happening? And that's why as God's elect, his chosen, his beloved people, when we experience trials uh, and the weight of the exile that we are in, because once again, we're in this world, but not of this world, the weight of the exile is, is perplexing at times, right? It's just, it's just like, okay, there's many times I didn't feel like I signed up for this. And that's where Peter is, is intersecting with us tonight in this section of scripture. He's writing to remind us of the very thing that he knows that the readers, as he did, and Daniel did a great job last week laying 
this out. He, he says, hey, we need to consider salvation's future glory there in verses three through five, but woven together in the light of present day adversity in verses six through nine. So when we consider then, as Daniel laid out for us last week, that that imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved, heavenly inheritance in, in considering that, let's jump in to verse six then and read what Peter has to say. Does someone want to read for us verses six through nine? So Peter reminds us that the inheritance is not going to be won without enduring numerous difficulties first. Uh, to put it maybe in a little different way, uh, after, after he's bursting forth in a joyful song on heaven, he now turns around and composes a sonnet uh, uniting woe to joy. And to use his exact vocabulary there, Rejoice is coupled to what? Various trials. Rejoicing is coupled to various trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, then that leads us to go, okay, we got to define the various trials. We have to define that. And Getting a precise handle on what Peter means by that, that word there is important. And the reason would be, of course, that the entire letter is established in this theme. <laughs> so we better figure out what these various trials are. These, the word trials or testing has a rich biblical history. Uh, it has a very expanded uh, vocabulary to it in in the Bible, it can have a very wide meaning as well. The phrase has probably more, I guess when I was thinking about it today, I was in the process of closing those, those shades back there that uh, have the baptism behind it. And if you don't know, there's a little, little rubber band that we use in there to keep them close so they don't just kind of open up. And so when I was closing that today, I was, I was like, oh, well that word, has way more elasticity to it than we realize. And so when he says various trials, there are, there are some things that we really can define pretty easily through that. Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8. You know, if you hear his voice, do not uh, harden your hearts as in rebellion on the day of testing. So there's the testing trials in the wilderness. And... The writer of Hebrews then is quoting from a time in Israel's history when, when God's people were without a home, wanderers, sojourners in exile, if you will, people trying to make their way through the wilderness of life. And as such, they're marked by a lack of what? What were they 
marked by, in the world's eyes, a lack of position, a lack of power, a lack of provision. A lack of position, a lack of power, a lack of provision. They were, were without human protection and basically awoke every day to the reality that their life lacked any permanence, right? What are we going to do today? We're going to get up and march on. You know, we don't have, we're, we're wandering in the desert for 40 years. And those are the kind of trials Peter's readers were experiencing as well. They knew a thing or two about being strangers, about being so, sojourners in a foreign land, right? We, we looked at that early on in this letter. They're familiar with navigating life without that position, without that power or that sense of even a political uh, permanence in their lives. So that's, that's a first look of what that word various trials uh, plays out in, in, uh, in Hebrews. Another look would be in Luke 8.13 where we see it. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. The parable of what? Sower, the sower. And some observations there help us to get the sense of the word Peter is using in our text as well. First, Peter uses it in close proximity to what? Joy. You see, you see the connection here. What did Jesus do? He used joy very closely to the, uh, to the word, but the opposite response happened than what Peter was talking about. So Luke uses it there, and instead of joys and trials being united in the heart, they are in the soul of the one who falls away, and it separates from joy. The initial joy of Christian faith then abates in some, and sadly is spoken of being altogether lost when encountering life's trials. And that is where we get one of our understandings that, once again, not everyone that calls themselves a Christian is actually a believer. Because if they were a believer, Peter's argument is that various trial happens and what happens with a believer. Joy grows, as we will continue to mine this in a little bit. But... So you get, you get that various trials language here. A second observation from Luke's use of the term, and really more importantly for our understanding, is connection between trials and, and a verbal and physical persecution. So, so Matthew's parallel telling of the parable, uh, the term trial refers specifically there to the kinds of tribulation or persecution that arises on account of God's word. Okay, so young followers of Christ will find it pretty hard early on to hang on during early verbal assault in their faith. Right. You, you, you may have experienced it yourself, but, you know, the, res, uh, the, the family hears that you're a believer and they're not. The verbal assault and persecution just, you know, how dare you do that? You know, we grew up this background or, the, you know, this different things like that. 
you know, what do you need a crutch? All of this type of, of stuff that's thrown at the believer. You know, oh, you're narrow-minded, or you, you know, why do you believe in that junk? You believe in the, you know, we can go all night long with the different statements that are used against uh, believers. So Peter gives examples of trials that refer to verbal and physical abuse on account of the word uh, all throughout this this letter. And, and so we, we see that as well. So some those are just, that's a second observation. So you've got Hebrews there, you've got Luke there using that word, trials. You're starting to see it, it's expanding all over the place, right? Uh, Galatians 4, another use of the term trials. Um, Paul uses it. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Just out of curiosity, does anyone realize what Paul's actually talking about there? Where uh, the bodily ailment? Does anyone? We actually, we actually know this one. Yeah. No, no, he had just got he just got beat up. Right. So he 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 was he was left for dead. Remember. So uh, that Paul covered this area in the first missionary journey. And while he was there, he was dragged out of the city and stoned and left for dead. That's a pretty big burden on this new group of believers. Right. Paul survived the ordeal, but he was left disfigured, pain, and seeing him in that state proved to be a great trial. Can you imagine? This is our apostle. This is our teacher. This is our pastor. And this is what the world did to him because he was simply sharing Christ. So the term trial there is in reference to uh, the angst suffered by those who are Christians who loves loved ones are undergoing physical suffering and pain. So they were afraid. No, they weren't afraid. It doesn't they say were any. Afraid of what he would bring to them in a good way. Hmm? No, I well, I don't think it doesn't. To me, I we don't see anything there about being afraid. But uh, no, but I'm saying the people. They're in a fear of something that they don't know. And people in today's time, if they don't know something, they're ignorant and they, they didn't take the time to find out. So they just reacted to him in a negative way. Okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, obviously this thing here deals with the fact that you've got believers who are put into a position where they got to care for a person? They got to, they've got the 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 hurt. Like this happened in our our neck of the woods. It's like one of those things where if you if you had someone of great Christian background, great pastor, come in to your area and get beat up outside your church, you know you'd feel awful, right? Yeah. So so what you're saying is correct then. Near the end of Galatians, he says, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And that would have been the, the wounds that he received from being beaten up. Yeah, and, and Jesus, Jesus told him, You're going to be paying a price. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and so uh, 
when, when you do a study like this, it starts to like, you, you, you peel back this beautiful flower of what Peter's actually saying. Uh, it's, it's the elasticity of this various trials is, is very deep. Uh, and that would be uh, some of the things that would happen to Peter's readers then and, and now. And then the final use, uh, if, you, if you look at Matthew 26, um, at that point in the narrative, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and Peter, who is our author of this letter, was with him. And on that night, the intensity of the conflict between Jesus and Satan was so severe, what was going on in Christ's life physically? The capillaries of his body were bursting and causing him to sweat blood. The intensity of the spiritual battle that was going on caused a physical reaction that is known to happen, but only under the most extreme of circumstances. And then what does Peter do? He falls asleep. And Jesus says to him, so you could not watch with, watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that word temptation there is actually the same word that is used in the trials of various kinds. So that's where we get that, that temptation Various trials can refer to direct attacks from Satan, from his demons. Later in Peter's letter, we find him making use of that imagery and language. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there you have it. In 15 minutes, we've unpacked various trials. And that various trials matches exactly the wide range use of the term elsewhere in the New Testament. And as a result, then, we can say a few things about what Peter actually is saying when he says various trials. He's not speaking here of a localized trial, as some people say or a season of suffering, what he's saying is there are going to be seasons in life when you will lack provision, you will lack power, you will lack position, you will lack protection as a believer. You will lack a sense of permanence as a believer. There will be that truth. At times you will be the recipient of verbal or physical persecutions that arrive on account of God's word and you sharing that. This then also includes the pain experienced by those who are loved ones whose bodies appear to be wasting away before your very eyes. So that's that connection there with Paul. You talk about like alcoholism, alcoholism and you're seeing No, no, this is persecution. Oh, persecution. Yeah. Um, and then, although it can include physical things, uh, alcoholism I would categorize in something different for this moment. Um, this includes also then lastly the dark moments in life when you, uh, you are fending off 
Satan's attacks. And these difficulties may be temporal, they may be occasional, because if you go back to verse 6, what does it say there? Even though now for a little while, and then this next phrase, if necessary. Why would it be necessary? Anyone want to venture down that road? Yes, Sasha. For our good and God's glory. That's the rest. That's that's where the rest of this comes in. The you know why? What purpose does this serve? We've got to go through the waters of tribulation if we're going to arrive at the shore of inheritance. So trials prove, as you see on the outline there, trials prove the the genuineness of our faith. And when we're hearing here from Peter that heaven's joys are intertwined with trials, earthly trials, and this is then by design, it had to raise a ton of question marks with the early followers. Questions like, well, what functions does this really do? If necessary, what's the function? What ultimate purpose will trials accomplish? And from our text, Peter intends to provide the answer, right? He connects joy to woe. Then he begins explaining the purposes of life's trials in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials come for testing, and testing, like putting gold into the fire, is meant to prove, okay, how how genuine is this? Put it differently, trials are the proving ground for our faith. Others in church history understood this well and have said that way better than me, so I'll share one with you. You may not know the name of John Rippon, but he was the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London prior to the pastor that everyone knows. (laughs) Everyone in this church that's been around for a while knows the name Charles Spurgeon. That's your buddy, your own boy. That's right, man. John was the pastor before him who wrote this famous line when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply the flame shall not hurt thee I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine and what he's saying is right there in the in the the depths of Peter's text. Your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it is tested by fire. Um, A picture that's used here, a word picture that's used here actually, is from the ancient Roman times, and it shows the method by which grain uh, was threshed. One man could be seen, if you were looking at it, stirring up, the, the, the sheaves of grain while the other rides over them in this crude uh, equipment with rollers instead of wheels. 
And attached to the rolling cylinders were stones, sharp stones and bits of iron. And as they ground over the, the tossed sheaves, the stones and the iron separated the husks from the grain. And the simple cart was called a, a tribulum. Okay, so that's ancient Rome, a tribulum. This piece of farm machinery is the object from which we get our word tribulation. Do you ever feel like you're under the weight and the force of a tribulum in your life? I have got all of these sharp stones and all of these sharp pieces of iron being rolled over me on this huge, really heavy rock. And that's a pretty good word picture for how it feels in various trials, right? And if Pete, so Peter wants to remind you when he, when he says these various trials, this tribulation, that the thresher's intention, though, in verse 7, is not for tearing up the sheaves. Specifically, the intentions are elevated. The farmer wants to get out of that the grain, the precious grain. And that's the way God is. Understanding God's purpose for us includes various trials and why they're important. Uh, the simple truth is once the junk of this world is removed from us, we're now made fit for what? Heaven. These various trials refine us and make sure the faith is true and simple. Another way to look at it's this way. I, f I found this is interesting. So what is uh, in our world today, uh, geologically, what is the one uh, thing that the earth is made out of most? No, no, I mean uh, a solid form. Uh, a metal it's iron uh, the world is predominantly iron it's the, the most uh, it, when people say oh well, we may run out of metal <laughs> no no <laughs> that's that's the one thing we don't have to worry about okay so iron ore pulled from the earth is it's interesting because even with all of the inflation things and different things going on, a bar of iron ore is only worth about five bucks <laughs> compared to gold or silver or anything like that. That same bar, though, when you mess with it, is pretty interesting. So if you mess with that iron bar and make it into like horseshoes, you know, a set of horseshoes is like 20 bucks. It's the same metal. But you mess with it and all of a sudden it's worth a little bit more. If you tried to, if you didn't try, but if you make that bar into needles for sewing, that same bar, if you make all of that material into needles for sewing, is now worth $3,285. Exact same thing. Yeah, but they mix it with other, other metal. Be quiet. <laughs> Doesn't matter what they mix it with. You can, you can argue with my illustrations afterwards. If you turn that into springs, if you turn it into springs for watches, springs for watches, 
the value jumps up to $250,000 for the exact same amount of iron. You're talking about that? No. <laughs> so the point is, Tracy, <laughs> the point is, is what made the difference? The refining. The refining. It's all about the refining. The, the amount of heat applied to the exact same amount of iron changes everything. And what Peter is saying specifically there, I hope that kind of gives you a, a clear picture then of what, what Peter is saying in that is that our faith is far more precious to God than that bar of iron. We are far more precious than just God's not going to leave us the way we are. He's going to refine us for his glory. That's what verse 7 says. So we need to be encouraged then. Because you may find yourself on the anvil of suffering. But God is at work. He's testing the genuineness of faith. And for him, that faith has what value? It's eternal value. It's eternal value. Now, so we've got the various trials. We've got what it, it proves. And then we've got the, the importance then of our response to the trials. Our, our willingness as Christians to endure this pounding on the anvil of life says a lot about our trust in God. He's fashioning us into his praiseworthy and honorable vessels in his glory. And there's this, this old guy, I mean, I mean, really old, that had this to say about this that I, I stumbled across this week. I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have ever learned in my many years in this world, everything that has, that was truly has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if I ever were to be possible, if it were ever to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too benign and trivial, trivial to be endured. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me to Christ. This guy is saying, my faith, my strong faith is made possible through enduring trials. George Mueller said a few things about this. I have learned my faith by standing firm amid severe testings. He also said, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, uh, to be willing to take them for God's hands as a means. Trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. That's George Mueller. And yes, Tracy, my buddy, buddy Spurgeon has chimed in on this as well. <laughs> trials teach us what we are. What you they dig up the soil and let us see, as he said, what we're made of. He also said... 
So surely as the stars are fashioned by his hands and their orbits fixed by him, so surely are our trials allotted to us. He has ordained their season and their place, their intensity and the effect they should have upon us. And that all sounds great and fine, but you know as well as I do that many times our number one response to trials are to flee. (laughs) Run away! You know, just try to get out of there. But the responses of Mueller and Spurgeon, for example, are only made possible by embracing Peter's words as truth. Without a deep and abiding trust in God's words, we will try to flee at all costs. And we're going to miss out the very point that God has for us. In this respect, I'm reminded of many biblical characters that had to deal with trials but one specifically who did not flee when was given the opportunity, Joseph. And when he was accused, I mean, he could have fled at many different times. I mean, we gotta gotta remember, he's wearing a coat of many colors that signified that he was the elect one, the favored one. He knew that God was going to do something. I mean, God made it apparent. He told him in dreams. He knew all of that. But what did he do in exile? He, He let God work. He let him work. He knew. He knew God had said what he had said. And he was well acquainted, obviously, with various trials. He was sold into slavery and was without what? Protection, position, and power. And he could have fled again when accused. He could have fled. He didn't. He, he, there was a lot of opportunity. And he could have taken advantage of his family when they showed back up. But what did he say? What you designed for evil, God used for what? Good. Good. He's giving a nod to the trial was meant for good. It's the exact same thing that Peter's letting us know here. The world needs more men and women like Joseph. Followers of Jesus who refuse to take themselves out of harm's way. We we remember God uses our sufferings to assist us in obtaining the outcome of our faith, namely the salvation of our souls. Yes, it's not about works. That work is done through Christ, but the works of refining, it's like game on. Game on, and it's continual. And for Peter, those present day sufferings only heightened our awareness of the separation we feel from the presence of Jesus. And that's why he concludes here in verses eight and nine. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
Uh, Ron, you wanted to mention yeah, something? I was just going to mention that um, uh, he didn't flee, he endured what he was going through. And I think you, you said one response that people can have is they want to flee the trial and get out of it. And I think sometimes people are in that trial, and the other thing they do is they complain, like, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me, or why is this happening to, you know, to my family, or whatever, instead of, again, enduring yeah, I would say the complaining is not as bad as the fleeing. I, I think there's there's definitely, I mean, David did a lot of pleading in the Psalms. Okay, God, what's going on here? And, and, and what's going to be the result of this? So I don't disagree with you, but I do think if we got to be careful with the word complaining. Because I think there's pleading that's a, an honest relationship with God. Okay, you know, why is this happening? And God, you know, even though Job was not right in some of what he said to God and God smushed him, who was the one that God said was, you know, in all the, in all the land, he's the guy. And he was, you know, he endured, obviously, so, I mean, we see that throughout Scripture quite a bit. But, I, yeah, you got to be careful. Yeah. What's fascinating for me is that these folks, basically, and early, you know, Christians, no Bible, what we have. It's word to word. They didn't flee. I mean, many of them probably. But that strength, what they had, I, I believe that must be God and the Holy Spirit. But they didn't flee. They, they kept going, and that's why we have what we have. Isn't that right? Or is, am, am I wrong on that one? So they, we have Bibles. We have everybody can purchase it, and still so many didn't even yeah. read it. And these folks went through beating, right. you know. Mm -hmm. and no, so, I, I, I mean, so, it just amazes me. So I would say it's both. It's both amazing because obviously verse 8 and verse 9 give credence to the fact that, hey, you guys didn't see him. Right. Yeah, Peter's, Peter's saying, you haven't, you know, I, I got to hang out with him, right. you know, and, and see the wonders of Christ and see his resurrected body. Uh, though you've not seen him, you love him. Uh, and obviously Jesus made that same point that, you know, hey, it's, it's one thing, if you guys have seen me, uh, the generations that come behind me that, that, do that believe that have not seen or those people's faith are absolutely incredible. I think it's both ways. So you're right because these guys walked into a scenario where soon as they said yes to Jesus, they got annihilated by their families, by the everything, protection, power, provision, gone. It's intense. I would argue that we lived in a kind of a bubble a little bit in our last few generations in the United States of complacency as Christians, mm -hmm. but that bubble's long gone. And, and now, now it's full force attack everywhere you go. And yes, we're not being killed, quote unquote, but the various trials is the verbal thing happening. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it's always happened, but it's, it's full, full blast now for us is the, Provision and power and protection gone. Yeah, ask the people who have lost jobs because of their beliefs. 
uh, this is this is now full blast on this side too. So I think the answer is both now. Yeah, but don't you think that now actually have more uh, voice of the Christians because of that? So it it seems like it's coming out stronger. Well, and that's yeah, and that's the point that Peter's making here that we'll get to in just a second. Um, you believe in him and rejoice. You believe in him and rejoice. Peter is closing the thoughts on heaven in verse five. He wrote, "In this you rejoice, right?" Mm-hmm. You know, we looked at that last week. Um, uh, in verse six, you know, the, that rejoicing in, in what he said in verse five. But when he finishes his thoughts on suffering, he now moves into something even more than the rejoicing. What does he say? It's now inexpressible. Did you catch that? It's, it's now, um, you greatly rejoice uh, with joy, inexpressible. An inexpressible joy. And that's the strange truth of the gospel. Salvation's future inheritance is gained during the season of present sufferings. But when you think about heaven, you will have something to say uh, be, with the thought of enduring various trials, knowing the joy the trials have actually produced in you will be, um, the trials are going to be short, um, but it's, uh, it's like it's inexpressible joy of, of living for the Lord in the midst of that. I wish I could, hear, I wish I could have fled from both of those brain surgeries. But that wasn't God's plan, right? It wasn't God's plan. And, and so, the, it, you know, I have to attack that physical thing, that verbal thing, the, the elasticity of those various trials that we kept talking about. Okay, why has God allowed this to happen? Why didn't God take me after the first one or even take me before the first one? Why has God allowed me to go through two? Why is there the potential that I could have three? Why, why, why? Because that guy's still playing golf. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> For his glory. And, um, but the, that's, the, that's the point, though, is uh, the answer is that the joy rises in your heart because the various trials are producing with you the outcome of your faith. Trials develop godly character. And that enables us to, as it says in Romans 5, rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does what? It doesn't disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. That's Romans 5. Jesus Christ set the example that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And these verses reveal the aspects of the divine purpose for both Jesus' trials and tribulations And ours. But you know, eventually you're going to get through it. You're going to, you're going to get over it. You're going to. Well, that's the idea. It's temple. You're just going to, you know, and, and, and not to stay in that mind frame. We're always going to get over stuff. If you do not dwell on it, you keep on moving well, forward. 
You keep moving forward. Eventually something's going to get you unless the Lord, <laughs> unless the Lord returns. But the, the point is, uh, you know, when, when Paul says in one of the most misused, uh, pulled out sections of scripture, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's, that's not the ultimate sports verse on the face of the planet or, or, you know, the ultimate, I'm going to go get a job because of this verse, uh, what what he's saying there is i i have hope in christ and even in the midst of all of the persecution because of my walk with him and how satan is going to continually attack and attack and attack i can do all things through christ who is doing what strengthening. he's strengthening me and how is he strengthening me and not just that but he's refined yeah go ahead Tracy was saying is that going keep moving forward, but that's the big question. Keep moving forward? Not necessarily, because you might want to change course by knowing him. I'm talking about moving forward in a positive way. In Christ. That positive yes. way, it can be positive, but not necessarily the right way. And that's where I know exactly you can go through trials and tribulations. That's life. That's what happens. And I know that because I've been through it. That's just the way it happens. And you've got to get over it. You can't keep on stuck in whatever. When you just get over it, you have to learn. Exactly. Yes. So, and then you change course. I've two brain surgeries, so. Right. And I'm still yep. under treatment, so. <laughs> and it's, it, things happen. And that's it. Okay. Don't know what to tell you. Everybody. I think everybody yes. has that. But my point is that you have to go through it. And we have to, uh, we know that uh, he is the one that makes us to be free, or we have freedom on Him. So it doesn't matter what we are going through. We know Jesus is going to be with us. That's all that I know. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me close it down with one sentence, and then, then we'll pray. What Jesus did for us on the cross reveals why he went through trials and tribulations, right? Mm -hmm. To set us free from sin. What we go through preserves, um, the, proves our faith. It refines us. And that is what Peter is getting at. So let's reread these verses one more time, and then I'm going to pray. Starting in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith, what? 
the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Lord, we desire to be found faithful until you are revealed in the second coming to us in person, until we see you face to face. Help us to be joyful people in the midst of sorrows and sufferings and the various trials that Peter's telling us about. Lord, we do love you. We do believe in you. And we long for the day that we both see you and dwell with you forever. So Lord, have mercy on us and refine us in the way that you have marked out for us to be your children. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone.